0: chapter the next section in the in the book that we're going through I just confess I'm always a little curious as to where we'll end up Um, and I I like that and that is part of the nature of, of expositional preaching and by expositional preaching I mean where you approach a text and you find out what the text says and that determines what the sermon's about The opposite of that or another way to do that uh, would be to say, well, here's what I'd really like to say in the sermon, and now let me go find a text that kind of coincides with that. and so as I approach a new text, thinking expositionally, wanting to see, well, what does the text say? How is it going to guide us as to what the message is this week? I've got some questions that I routinely ask, and they're actually good questions for anybody as you would approach the Scriptures and seek to understand what's here. I'm asking questions like, all right, well, what does this passage show me about who God is? All right? What does this passage show me about who I am? And what does this passage show me about the person and the work of Christ, right? Now, there are, there are others, but those are kind of the biggies that I'm initially, you know, who is God? Who am I? And what, does, what light does this shed on who Christ is and what he's done for me in the gospel? And so I knew what this week's passage was. I knew that this week was chapter 8, right? And that this was the conquest of Ai after the stunning defeat in chapter Seven. And so I'm asking my questions, all right, what does this show me about who God is? And as I asked that question and dug through the text, there were four things that bubbled up. And I could see in all of these, quite surprisingly, because I didn't think we were going here, the fatherhood of God. Four things about who God is, and they all pertain in one way or another to, to our God being father, I didn't expect that out of a passage on the conquest of Ai, but I really do think that's one of the things that we have here. So as we work our way through this passage and, and, and understand what happened with this conquest of, of Ai, I want us to answer the question together, what's your father like? What is he like? As your father, what is he like? So if you're able, I ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the first two verses in chapter 8, and then jump down uh, to verse 11 uh, and go there to 29. This is the Word of God. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Now look down to verse 11. And so what we've skipped over is some of the preparation for this battle, but almost all of that preparation is reiterated as the battle commences. Verse 11. And all the fighting men who were with Joshua... Went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai, with the ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree And threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Let's go to Him in prayer. God, this is Your Word. It was inspired by Your Spirit. And the authors wrote it down even as they were carried along by Your Spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit, would You now be our help? Would You help us to understand our Father better? To know our God? And to know what He has done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ? May You change us through all of this, we pray. In Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Please be seated. So four things that your Father is like. You have an outline in your worship folder. And so this first one, I'll be honest, I struggled so much with what to call this first one because there's so much wrapped up in it. But in the end, I think it all comes down to forgiveness. So the first thing that your Father is like is forgiving. Let me ask you, What is the father's disposition toward you when you've blown it? When you've screwed up royally, what's your father's disposition toward you? That's not a question I would very eagerly ask my own children, especially in the company of others. Uh, What's your dad like when you screw up and then he blows up, right? right? They probably sense that I need a bit of a, a cooling off period. Right? Give, give dad a wide berth for a while. He's mad. Maybe they even feel like they need to walk on eggshells with me for a time. But is that what our heavenly Father is like when we blow it? Look at verse 1. This is what struck me. Just think about the context of where this chapter is and what's just gone on. And so these are the very first things that the Lord says. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. Some of your translations say don't be discouraged. Well, why might they be dismayed? Why might they be afraid? Because in fact they had royally blown it. That's where we were last week. They'd screwed up pretty badly and suffered a horrible defeat because of it. Because of the sin in the camp. Because of Achan having kept some of the, the plunder from Jericho. And then Israel had to stone and burn Achan and his family and they heaped a pile of stones on top of his remains. Right? So they're probably a little on edge at this point. They're probably... Thinking that maybe God is on edge as well. Do they need to give Him a cooling off period? Do they need to walk on eggshells? And and so they're right to think that sin affects our relationship with God. Because it does, right? They're right to think that. uh, The prophet Isaiah captures it really well uh, in in 59, uh, the first two verses, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Our our, our sin has an effect on our relationship with our God. It does have an impact because He's angered by our sin. Right? We saw this last week. That's why they lost this battle. They lost because God was angry with their sins. So it would be understandable if they felt like, Ugh, God might need some time here. We might need to let Him cool off a little bit. And so if they felt afraid, if they were discouraged, God, in His fatherly kindness, right, in, in His reassuring way, says, all right, don't fear. Don't be discouraged. Because in fact, there's no reason to be afraid. There's no longer reason to be afraid because the guilt of their sin had been removed. Because the guilt had been removed, because the deaths of Achan and his family had made atonement for the sin, their deaths turned away God's wrath, turned away His anger. And so while it's right to sense, yes, my sin has an effect on my relationship, it is wrong to not appreciate the power of His forgiveness. And the restoration that His forgiveness brings. He's not angry. He doesn't hold a grudge. He's not in a bad mood. Unlike some earthly fathers I know. You don't have to walk on eggshells with Him. He is perfectly forgiving. And He wants us to be reassured of that. Well, what else is your father like? Oh, He's generous. He's so generous. Let's finish verse 1 and move into verse 2. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Oh, foolish Achan. Oh, Achan, if you had just waited. If you had just known that your God was a generous Father. Who loves to give good gifts to his children. I love the the passage in Matthew 7 toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Jesus is is talking to those who think that they're good fathers. But He wants to show them a better father. So in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 9, He says, Which one of you, if His Son asks Him for bread, will give Him a stone? Or if He asks for a fish, will give Him a serpent? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? See, either Achan didn't know or he lost sight of the Father's generosity and that was his undoing. Losing sight of the Father's generosity can be deadly. One of the things that I read this week uh, out of the, com- the commentaries that I've been using, one of which is by uh, Dr. Ralph Davis. I don't know if you remember several years back, he came and spoke at our missions conference, preached from Jonah. Uh, he has a great commentary on Joshua. And what he calls this is serpent theology. Right? He-, he says, We fall prey to serpent theology. Which is this idea that God's holding out on you. He's holding back. He won't give you good things. He's stingy. He's miserly. And see, that was the serpent's tactic in the garden. That's what he wanted Adam and Eve to believe. Oh, God's holding out on you. He knows what will happen if you eat that fruit. He doesn't want you to have that. He's not being good. His rules, oh, they're oppressive. His instruction, it's not for your best interest. And Adam and Eve fell for it. And Achan fell for it. Because, y'all, if if God says, don't eat of this tree, if God says, don't take from, from this battle, It's not because He isn't generous. It means He knows best. It means He's got a particular order that He wants us to follow. It's because He knows that our lives were designed to work best when we put Him first. When we pursue His glory and obedience to His perfect law and instruction life just works better that way it's a it's a kingdom principle he is a giver of good gifts make no mistake god is a giver of good gifts if we seek him first then a bounty awaits for us right matthew six thirty three. seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things everything you could possibly need is going to get thrown in as well But here's the principle more fleshed out for you. Here's what we've got to remember. We've got to seek the giver and not the gifts. We've got to seek the giver and not the gifts. If we reverse that, we're in trouble. Because see, if you seek the gifts, then you're going to get neither the giver nor the gifts. That's that principle. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of this will be added to you as well. So when we seek the giver, we get both. Seek the gifts, get neither. Seek the giver, get both, because our God is a generous father. What else is your father like? Well, he's helpful amazingly helpful verse 18 is somewhat of the turning point in this passage see all the all the battle plans are set and it's it's a pretty great strategy this is the first time we actually get some military strategy that actually looks like military strategy right so we're going to draw the folks out of the city there's going to be an ambush behind the city that's waiting to swoop in and take the city and then the folks of ai will be sandwiched in between and so it's in verse 18 that the action actually gets started. So look at 18 and 19 here together. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin. This, this spear, a short sword, not exactly what it was like. Stretch it out that's in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran And entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. But he doesn't just lift it up. He holds it up. Look at verse 26. For the duration of the battle, Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Now when I first read this passage, I thought, "All right, him raising this thing up in the air, that's the signal that the troops have been waiting for. But I don't think that really works for a couple of reasons. Number one, remember the part that said Joshua was down in the valley. And these troops are on the backside of the... I don't understand how they're... And and if that was just a signal, then why would he hold it up for the entirety of the battle? Well, it's it's because it was a sign. It was a symbol. But it wasn't a symbol to get moving. It was a symbol to keep trusting. It was a reminder for the people of God's presence and His power. A reminder, in fact, of His promise that the Lord has promised to give you this city. And and don't they probably need a reminder after the stunning defeat in chapter 7? God's promise is still true. He's still going to be faithful to His Word. He will give this city, indeed the whole land, into your hand and so Joshua lifting up this this spear this javelin it's a sign of hope it's a reason to be confident you've already won this city God says you have and so part of Joshua raising up this spear shows us that the father is helpful and so what's your father like he's helpful well that's nice okay it's, it's not especially noteworthy, though, because any good father is going to try to be helpful to his kids. But there's something about this help, and there's something about this father that is noteworthy. And it's his helpfulness again and again and again, reminding his people of the same thing over and over, and over, without losing patience, without giving up, without saying, when are you people ever going to get it? No, he keeps helping, he keeps reminding. Because does Joshua lifting something up, does that remind you of anything? Does that call to mind maybe Joshua's predecessor? Lifting up something and God showing up in a pretty powerful way? Exodus 14, at the Red Sea... The Egyptian army coming in, closing in fast. What are we going to do? Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. That was the instruction. And so Moses did it. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. This lifted object in the air, a reminder of God's presence and power yet again for a forgetful people. Right? That's not the only time hands were lifted, right? Three chapters after that in Exodus, Exodus 17, they're battling the Amalekites. While Moses has his hands up, victory. When he gets tired and they begin to droop, the battle shifts. And so Aaron and, and her have to come and help hold Moses' hands lifted high while God wins for them the victory under Joshua's leadership of the army, no less. See, our father isn't just helpful. He's patiently, long-sufferingly helpful with us, though we doubt, though we forget. He helps us with the same thing over and over and over again, time after time, showing us his presence and his power. The fourth thing that your father is like He's just. He's just. Look at verse 29. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city. Raised over a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. Now, right off the bat, if that doesn't seem very fatherly to you, I hear you. But hang on with me. We'll circle back to the fatherly part of this in just a second. Let's focus first on the justice. God causes His people to prevail in this battle, to defeat Ai, and to destroy her Inhabitants. Now here we go again. Right. More death, more destruction. Right. Joshua is not light reading. It is sobering. It is heavy. But here's the fact that we cannot escape from these people are getting what they deserve. God is just in metting out his judgment against these people. They have been enemies of God and enemies of God's people for over 400 years. And God has delayed his justice until now. He's also delayed showing the faithfulness to his covenant for His people until now. Because you got to remember back, all the way back Genesis 12, when He's making the covenant with Abraham and He's saying, I'm going to make you a people. And this people, I will bless those who bless them. And I'll take care of those who don't bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And these folks, these folks in Ai... If you've got any doubt about how much they hated God's people, all you have to do is look at verse 16 and 17. They hate God's people so much that they break a cardinal rule of warfare. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. Right? You never leave the city defenseless. And yet they hated God's people so much. There was an eagerness, there was a bloodthirstiness about these people. That they leave themselves wide open. And so God has commanded the destruction of these people. And He commands that an example be made of their king. And so after the king is killed, he's hung on a tree. And it's a strong symbol of His divine judgment against the great wickedness of these people that God for so long had delayed His justice And so we see the faithfulness of God to His covenant people in cursing those who curse them. What we need to know is that hanging this king on a tree is not some new invention of barbarism. This was spelled out in God's law in Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Which is what they did. For a hanged man is cursed by God. I hope that by now, some of you see where I'm going with this. The justice of God meant... The Aites and their king were cursed because of their wickedness. The Apostle Paul understood that the justice of God also meant that Christ was cursed because of our wickedness. Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. For us, for it is written, Paul knew his Old Testament too. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed for us as if he were the transgressor instead of us. All right, so now let's circle back around to how in the world does this show us the justice of a father? What about this has anything to do with God being our father? Well, it could only be a father to give us a son. It could only be a father to give us a son. It had to be the son to hang on the tree. It had to be the one and only, the only begotten son of the father who would receive justice so that we might ever know a father's forgiveness. See, everything that we've talked about, everything that we've seen of God's fatherly nature goes back to the Son. What is it to know the Father's forgiveness were it not for the Son purchasing it for us? What is it to know the Father's generosity without seeing the greatest act of generosity the world has ever known in that He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. And if that's not seeing the Father's helpfulness in the greatest eternal problem and need that we could ever have, then I don't know what is. See, if we want to know what our Father is like, We need only look at the Son and see He's forgiving, He's generous, He's helpful, and He is just, even though we don't experience the justice because the Son experienced it for us. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father... It's to our own peril if we fail to see you as these things. And so, would you, by your grace and the working of your powerful spirit in us, cause us to see and cause us to remember your forgiveness, your generosity, your helpful provision. And, O Lord, Your justice as well. Would You press these deep down into our hearts and into our minds? And would You change us as sons and daughters by showing us what You're like as Father? For Your glory and for our good we pray. Amen. Would you please stand let's sing in response.